Welcome, Jane. So good to have you back with us. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 4. We are Today uh, will be our second last Sunday in the Psalms. Next week we have a guest with us. In the following week, September 5th, we will conclude this series of praying with God's people. Though we want to continue to pray with God's people, of course. Uh, but uh, this is the second last week. We'll look at Psalm 4 this morning, if you would turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there are some. Uh, not, I'm out of practice of saying this, but we have Bibles out. You can grab one. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that with you as our gift to you. Probably about 15 or 16 years ago, I know all of our boys were already with us, so uh, Brennan is almost 17, so 15 or 16 years ago probably uh, about that there, um, I was at sunrise here in the office late at night. I had been here for a meeting. Uh, everyone else had left, and I was wrapping some things up. It was probably around 10 o'clock when the church phone rang, and I answered it. Uh, there was a man on the other uh, end of the phone, and he was in need of help. He had arrived in Edmonton expecting to stay with a friend, but something had happened, and he was not welcome there. And so he had showed up in the city and nowhere to go. It's 10 o'clock at night. And, and I started racking my brain thinking, how, where, where, what do I do? Is there a, a men's shelter? I, I got out the yellow pages. This, I don't think I had a computer that went on the World Wide Web at that point. And so I looked in the yellow pages and trying to find some hotels and called, but it was horrifically expensive and I, I wasn't authorized to spend that kind of money. And I, just as I was racking my brain trying to figure things out, uh, I, I kept having this image come to mind from the Lord, I think, of our guest room at home. And I thought, Lord, I, I, don't, I don't know this guy. I've never met this guy. I, I asked him, I said, where are you? He said, I'm in the parking lot. I'm like, oh, so he came to the door. I met him. He was like six foot three, this big guy, and I'm not. And, and, and so I finally, I called Christine. I said, hey, this guy showed up here. He's got nowhere to stay. Like, what do you think? Can, can he stay in our guest room tonight? And she said, I trust you to make that decision. So I'm like, okay. So I invited him to follow me home and, and uh, showed him downstairs into the guest room then I went upstairs, and, and we were going to bed, our three young boys in the room next to us. And uh, as we laid in bed, just before I turned the light off, Christine turned to me, I remember, and said something to this effect. Well, if he's a murderer, I hope he kills us all. Good night. <laughs> you know that expression, sleep like a baby? I think it's a silly expression, right? Those of you with babies. But anyways, I, I didn't sleep like a baby. I was a fitful, restless night. Every noise I heard, I, I laid there just listening for much of the night. But we survived the night, and the sun rose, and we were all still alive. And uh, as it turned out, yeah, he ended up staying with us for about a month and became a dear friend of our family. In fact, he became a part of this church for a while until he moved back east. This morning, we are going to look at Psalm 4. Uh, a psalm that is called uh, an evening prayer. It's called that because of its final verse. It says this, In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. As we will soon see, uh, the, the psalm, the prayer doesn't begin there. He begins in a state of distress. He begins with lament. But it is where the psalmist concludes. It's where God wants to lead us to this place of peace because He is with us. 
Before I read the psalm, let me uh, briefly speak to the, the matter of context, the situation. Some psalms tell us uh, about the situation out of which they are prayed. For example, Psalm 51 is prefaced with these words, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. We're not left to wonder. We know the context. We know the situation out of which Psalm 51 was prayed. Likewise, Psalm 3, the psalm that precedes this psalm, we read this, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Absalom led a rebellion, uh, usurped the throne from David, and David ran for his life. And Psalm 3 is prayed out of that experience. Psalm 4 does not provide us with that uh, contextual information. Uh, it simply says, for the director of music with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. We know it was of David, and we know that you were supposed to sing it, you know, with violins and violas and that bigger thing, stringed instruments, cello, right? There's some info for music types, but really there's no information about the situation out of which this psalm is prayed. Now, there are some scholars who believe that this uh, psalm shares the same context as Psalm 3, that, that it, it is also out of that context of Absalom uh, coming after him. But uh, there's nothing in this psalm, as you'll see, that tells us that. In fact, I think when we look at the, the nature of the trouble that David faces, I think there's reason to believe that it can't be that same context as Psalm 3. There are others who suggest that it... it it comes from a time in Israel's history when they were experiencing a famine in Israel, a famine that's referenced in 2 Samuel 21. But again, there's nothing within this psalm that points us in that direction. And so uh, I'm of the same mind as James Montgomery Boyce, who says, he, he writes this, It is tempting to seek a historical setting for Psalm 4, just as for Psalm 3, but there is little justification for it. Now, we're not going to spend uh, any further time on this, uh, on, on something that we simply cannot definitively determine. But suffice it to say, uh, God has seen fit not to provide us for this psalm, the specific context. It is a prayer uh, that is uttered by David. It is uttered in, as he faces a particular uh, experience of distress. And what we know is that it is for public worship, for use in public worship. And as such, it's relevant for us and for believers through the centuries around the world in, in any person's life as we experience distress we can pray this prayer with David. Now, follow along as I read Psalm 4, verses 1 to 8. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart His faithful servant for Himself. The Lord hears when I call to Him. Tremble and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Light, let the light of your face shine on us. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety." I want to walk through and unpack this psalm under four headings. Uh, the first heading is simply distress. Second heading, delusions. Third, deliberations. And fourth, declaration. So distress, delusions, deliberation, and declaration. The prayer begins with these words. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. 
David, King David, is in a state of distress. He cries out to God, and there's four things that he asks, uh, four things that he, he cries out to God. Answer me, give me relief, uh, have mercy, hear my prayer. David, just in his distress, cries out. It's like this staccato shotgun kind of boom, 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 boom. These are the things that are machine gun that he, he's asking. Answer me, give me relief, have mercy, hear my cry. Now, though we don't know the particulars uh, of his situation, uh, there are a number of things that we can discern within this prayer and say. First, we can discern that David is in some way being undermined by a group of enemies. David speaks of this group in verse 2. How long will you people? He's speaking to a group of enemies, those who are against him in some way. Over the course of David's life, he often encountered enemies. He often encountered those who would rise up against him. Uh, Saul was one of them. King Saul tried to king, kill David. Absalom is another. He rose up and, and stole the throne from his father. So there are these individuals, but here, at least, there is this group. How long will you people? This group of people, uh, enemies unnamed, we don't know who they are, we're not told, but we do discover something in regards to what they are doing. We read on, how long will you people turn my glory into shame? This shows us the second thing that we can deduce. Uh, these enemies are turning David's glory into shame. What exactly does that mean? Well, uh, it might be helpful for us to understand that in ancient Israel, and, and is the case in many cultures still today, uh, it was a culture that really uh, highly valued honor, uh, kind of an honor-shame culture. Some of you are familiar with that. Some of you may have come from honor-shame cultures to where, where honor is supremely valued. And so to bring shame on your family is, is a big deal. To, to shame someone else is a big deal. James Mays writes this, shaming and humiliating a person was violence against them, worse than physical harm in an honor-shame culture. And so this group of people are, are shaming David. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? They are shaming him. They are, they are attacking his reputation. They are telling lies about him. They are, they are shaming him. When, when I was a young boy, many of you grew up with this saying too, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Other than the fact that that's completely not true, it, it, names do hurt, right? It, it hurts when people attack us, when people tell lies about us, when, when people uh, attack your reputation, accuse you of things that are not true, when they, they are unkind and speak to you calling you names and things. Just this week, I mean, we've all experienced this, but just this week, someone I'm reaching out to trying to care, I got a nasty text message calling me all kinds of things that I won't repeat. It's hard to get those, right? I mean, you, you can go, okay, this isn't true, but it's hard to see it. It's hard to hear it when people attack us, when people tell lies about us, when they slander us. That's what David has experienced. This group is... is Shaming him. They're turning his glory into shame. A third thing we can note about David's distress and the shaming that he's facing is, is that it relates to him as a servant of God, that as a follower of God. And so it's, it's not only an affront to him, but it, it indicates an affront to, to God as well. Look, look at verse 2 again. David makes clear that his enemies are not followers of God. They may well have been. They probably were part of Israel, but they have rejected God. They've turned away from God. 
They've turned to idolatry. Verse 2, he says, how long will you love delusions and seek false gods? We know that they were not walking with God. And then verse 3, we hear David clearly identifying himself as a faithful servant of God. So he's being attacked. People are telling lies. They're accusing him of things as a follower of God that are not true. And they have no loyalty to God. So he's facing this group of enemies, enemies slandering and lying about him, thus bringing shame upon him, and the lies center on him and his relationship with God, his, his being a follower, servant of God in some way. He's being falsely accused. His reputation is taking a beating. But notice this, that, that rather than reaching out to friends for sympathy, rather than lashing out and attacking his enemies, David instead turns to God in prayer. He cries out to God. He prays. This lament, at least it begins as a lament. He cries out to God, answer me, hear me, have mercy on me, give me relief. I have little doubt that every one of you could identify times in your life where you have been slandered, lied about, accused of things, where your reputation has taken a beating. Those are never pleasant, easy experiences. I can point to times in my life and I remember in one particular experience, just coming to the point where I, I said, you know, Lord, I, I can't control my reputation. I can't control what people say or believe. I just need to trust you. Right? We've, we've had those experiences like David. And though the reasons may be varied, I, I want to contend, and I, I want us to be prepared as God's people. I believe that in the season in which we are walking into, when I observe the world and the political realities, I believe that we as the church, we as faithful servants of of Jesus, will face this more and more. As those who hold to the truths of Scripture, as those who submit to the God revealed in the pages of the Bible, as, as followers of Jesus, as we as we believe and hold to such things as the doctrine of sin, that we're not mostly good, that we, we are all lost and rebels and need Jesus. We need grace. That, that the, the problem in our world is sin. It doesn't have political solutions. It has a spiritual solution. As we hold to the biblical ethic uh, when it comes to human sexuality, as we hold up the, the dignity of human life from the womb to the tomb, in our world, increasingly, we will be maligned. We will be accused of being hateful, bigots, Our reputation as followers of Jesus will take a beating. And so in the midst of that, as God's people face that, how do we respond? Well, we should, I would suggest, respond like David and looking to the Lord, coming to the Lord in the midst of that distress. I want to turn to the second part, that is delusions. As I already noted, the follower, the, sorry, this group of enemies that are maligning David, who are slandering him, are not followers of Jesus. They're not followers of God. They are said to love delusions and seek false gods. Well, David is a faithful servant of God. His enemies, his slanderers, are not. They're, they're seeking false gods. Uh, David says they love delusions. I, I, don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to highlight something that lies at the core of it. To deny the God of the Bible, to deny God who has revealed himself in his word and through Christ, is to deny the truth, to deny what is, to deny reality. 
The Bible tells us that God is the creator and sustainer of all things, that all that we see, all that, that, that exists comes from him, that he sustains us, everything, that every breath I take, every breath you take is a gift from God. He is the creator and sustainer over all things, that we were created by him for him, to know him, to love him, to be loved by him, to walk in relationship with him, in fellowship with him but that our sin, our rebellion has led us astray. And so that relationship has been severed and, and that sin has entered the world and that everything is broken, everything's a mess, nothing is as it's supposed to be. But God in His love has acted to bring redemption. God sent His Son Jesus out of love for His lost creations, us, sent His Son Jesus to come, to live in this world, to go to the cross and suffer the penalty for our sin, for our rebellion, for our wickedness. Jesus on the cross bore that penalty and so that through faith in Him that we would be forgiven, that we would be made new. The resurrected Christ who did not remain dead but rose, that we would be brought into relationship with Him. And that we can look forward to a future when one day God will bring to completion His redemptive work and all things will be set right. All things will be restored. That that's the truth revealed in Scripture. And when we reject God, when we reject uh, the, 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 the truth about God and the truth about life as we experience it, we are in fact choosing delusions. We are living in light of lies. There are some scholars, I said, who believe that this is, uh, that the setting of this text was a famine in the history of Israel. I don't know if that was true. Again, no indication in the text. But, but many in Israel, you read the biblical story, many in Israel turned away from Yahweh to Baal, worshipped Baal, the Canaanite fertility god. In one hand, had a a spear that represented lightning. On the other hand, a club that represented thunder. He was the god of fertility, of rain, of produce. And so if they were indeed experiencing a famine, the reality is here they're turning away from Yahweh, turning to Baal, putting their hope in Baal to somehow provide rain, to provide crops, to provide food. They have turned away from the living God to a false god. They are living, loving delusions, they're living their life according to lies. When people reject God, when they reject the biblical story, the biblical way of understanding the world we live in, our reality, they are seeking to meet their needs, live their life according to another set of beliefs. They are seeking fulfillment. They're seeking joy. They're seeking satisfaction in something other than a relationship with God. They are making other things into ultimate things, and thus they are loving delusions. They are living according to a lie. We were created to know God, to love God, and our joy, our satisfaction, life will be found only in a relationship with Jesus. And so choosing any other way, making anything else in your life ultimate, be it money or success, whatever it may be, you live for anything other than this relationship with the God who loves you, the God who's reaching out to you, the God who's calling you to himself, anything else is a delusion. It is, it is a lie. You're living for something false, something that will never satisfy because you were made for God. You were made to know and love and be loved by God. 
There are a number of Old Testament texts that powerfully speak to this reality of, of, of living for, of worshiping created things as, as if they're ultimate things. I, I want to read one of those texts to you from Isaiah 44. Uh, speaking about how a piece of wood is used. Listen, it, it is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat. He eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I see the fire. From the rest of it, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. Their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. and No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? And yet, when people live their lives for created things. That's what they're doing. Rather than worshiping the Creator, they're worshiping false gods. They're, they're loving delusions. That's what David says here of his enemies. How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? It leads us to the third thing. Well, for, before, sorry, before I do that, I, I, I want to note this. It's really a significant point. The beginning of this psalm, David directs his words to God, right? He cries out in his distress, hear me, have mercy on me, give me relief, answer me. But this second part of the prayer, his, his, his speech is not directed to God, it's actually directed to his enemies, which is really significant. He, he's, he's calling out to them, he's calling them, the ones who are slandering him, he's, he's trying to call them to their senses, and that's really important. And as we turn to our third uh, heading, deliberation, this continues. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. He says, again, his speech is directed to his enemies, those who are slandering him. He says, tremble and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Do you see what's happening? David is... He's giving advice. He's preaching to the very people who are his enemies. He's proclaiming the hope that is found in God to those who are against him. He says, tremble and do not sin. That is, this, this word of trembling, let's break this down. It speaks of the, the sober fear that, that we ought to feel if we do not know God. If we have rejected God, if we've not put our faith and hope in Jesus and the grace, the mercy that is found in Him, then we stand under God's coming judgment because of our rebellion. So he calls to his enemies, he says, tremble and do not sin. Recognize the precarious place in which you are, that you stand under God's judgment and change your way. Don't sin. Stop doing what you're doing. He carries on. And this change of direction will require a change in their understanding. So he says next, when you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Now what's that all about? What's, what's going on? Well, if, if they're going to tremble before God and turn from their sin, they, they need to understand reality. And so he calls them to careful deliberation. Uh, listen, here's how James Houston and Bruce Walkie put it. 
In a group, one is inclined to think and act rashly and hypocritically, whereas when offstage and in the privacy of one's own bedroom, one is more authentic. Okay, we all know this group think. When you're in a group, it, you, you, you kind of can just go along with the group, but when you finally are alone, okay, when, when you're in bed, even if you're married and there's someone sleeping next to you, when they're sleeping, you're still laying there alone. There's a sense of aloneness, right? That's what David's getting at. When you are alone, when the distractions and other people and their opinions are gone, and when it's just you, think carefully, deliberate about what you're doing. That's the point. Walkie and Houston continue. In that spiritual state, God has the best opportunity to speak clearly to a person through the conscience and to convince of moral truth. In other words, Upon your beds need not be taken literally, but figuratively to represent a condition and or situation of quiet contemplation. That's what David's calling his enemies to. Tremble, stop sinning, get alone, and think carefully about the choices you're making. Think carefully about reality. Contemplate, deliberate. He's calling them to stop and to think. He's crying out to them to repent and to believe to turn from their sin and put their faith in Yahweh, in God. I want to speak to any of you who are with us here on site or online who are not yet followers of Jesus. I I want to challenge you to to sober deliberation, to quietness, to get alone, and, and to ask yourself some really important questions. The reality is our world is so full of distractions, so much noise, so much busyness, that we can try uh, to go through life without actually stopping to think carefully. So I want to ask you, what is it you believe is ultimate? Do, do you believe that there is a God who has created you? Do you believe that there is a God to whom you are accountable? Do you believe that there's nothing? I want you to think carefully. I want to ask you, where have you put your hope? Do you have any hope? If this life is all there is, do you have any hope? I want to ask you, what have you done with Jesus? The the Bible reveals to us a God who has created us to know Him, to love Him. A God who in His love for us sent His Son, Jesus, who in His love willingly laid down His life for you and for me out of love for us. To to pay the price for our sins. to, To absorb God's wrath for my rebellion and yours. And the Bible tells us that through faith in Jesus, by by crying out to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you are my only hope. We are forgiven. We are washed. We are cleansed. We are made new. We are adopted as daughters and sons of the Father, brought into relationship with Him, and that we have an eternal hope, that we are loved, that that we have a future no matter what we face, that that one day Christ will return and He will restore all things and we will join Him in the greatest joy that we can even, greater joy than we can even imagine. That's the promise of Scripture when we trust in Jesus. And so I ask you to think carefully, what do you do with Jesus? What are you doing with the God revealed in these pages? I want to urge you, as David says here, when you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Think carefully. Don't let another day go by where you ignore thinking about spiritual realities and what is ultimately true. But think about this here. Listen for Jesus' invitation to you. Come to me and receive life. That can happen today. You can cry out today. You don't have to understand everything. You just need to recognize your need 
Turn from your sin to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are my only hope. And Jesus will pour his spirit into you. You will be made alive spiritually. You'll pass from death to life. That can happen today. A word to those who are believers. Uh, Boyce writes this, David shows a surprisingly kind attitude to his enemies and gives advice. He, he proclaims the gospel. He calls them to come to faith, to repent and to believe. He's, he's saying this to his enemies. He's saying this to those who are lying about him, those who are slandering him, those who are destroying his reputation. Now, I don't know about you, but it can be really hard to, to do that, don't you think? But it's exactly what Christ calls us to in the New Testament, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. And, and hear this, I, th- this is not theoretical. As the church is maligned increasingly in this season, we have to heed this word. What does it look like for us to love those who lie about us, those who accuse us things, those who, who beat the church down? How do we love? How do we pray for? How do we, how do we proclaim the gospel of hope to them? David warns, he exhorts his enemies, repent and believe, and we're called to do the same by the power of the Spirit, not by our own strength. By the power of the Spirit. The fourth heading here is declaration. The last part of the prayer that I want to look at with you is where we began, verse 8, the final verse, where David prays, In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. There's something critical for you to note at this point. If you read this prayer carefully, there is no indication, none whatsoever, that David's situation has changed at all. His situation externally, nothing is different. He has this group of people who are still lying about him, still slandering him, still beating on his reputation. Nothing has changed externally. But something has changed internally. Something has happened in David's heart He has been brought from his place of distress, crying out, remember, answer me, hear me, give me mercy, give me relief. He's been moved from that place to this place of peace, where he he prays, in peace I will lie down and sleep for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. In the midst of enemies who lie, in the midst of these, uh, these attacks, I will lie down and sleep in peace. A Vietnam War veteran wrote a letter to my Old Testament professor. And in it he wrote this. In one of the battles I fought in Vietnam, there were dead and wounded all around me. Having gone for three days without sleep, my ability to make wise decisions was at a dangerously low level. At 3 a.m. I found a hole in a jungle base, virtually under a battery of cannons. The heat of the jungle night combined with that of the cannons which fired volleys about every 20 seconds, was insufferable. Even in the stench of the gunpowder, the mosquitoes relentlessly pursued their bloodthirsty duty. As I lay there, this verse of Scripture came to me as audibly as any human voice. I will lie down in peace and I will sleep for you alone, Lord. Make me dwell in safety. I think I had the best two hours sleep in my entire life. Nothing changed in David's circumstances, but there was a change in him as he is reminded that his security is in God. And so because because God loves him, because God has him, he can with 
total confidence, lie down and sleep in peace. This amazing transformation, this movement from distress to confident rest in God. This, of course, does not mean that David will not suffer further attacks by these enemies. Trusting in God does not mean that we will not suffer pain and attacks of all kinds in this life. Jesus is the ultimate example of one who trusted, who rested in his Father's hands when he prayed, yet not my will, but yours be done. 1 Peter 2, I love these words. Peter writes, when they hurled their insults at him, that is at Christ, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. His security was in the Father. Our security, our peace comes not from our our situation, but from our relationship with God the Father. David knows He's reminded of what's true, that he belongs to God, that God's got him, that he is firmly in his hand, and that ultimately nothing can harm him. In peace, he will lie down and sleep, safe in the arms of God. Our security for all who have put their faith in Jesus, our security, our peace comes not when everything is as the way it should be, not not when there's no attacks, Our peace comes from the truth that we are loved, that we are redeemed, that we are secure in the arms of God. Listen to these words of Jesus from Luke 21. He says this to his disciples shortly before he goes to the cross. He says, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. They will put some of you to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. How do we hold those two things? We hold on to them knowing that our lives are in God's hands, that He has us no matter what we face, no matter what we suffer, no matter what attacks come at us. We are secure in Him. And because of that, we can pray with David. Every one of us has experiences like this. Every one of us has days, weeks, seasons of life like this. Peter Craigie writes this, there are days in the lives of all human beings which require a psalm like this at their end, this evening prayer. A prayer that, that changes us, a prayer that moves us from a place of distress and anxiety to a place of peace and security, where with confidence we can pray with David and with the saints through the centuries. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Amen.